Hello and welcome to In the Days of Noor with me, Noor, where we talk about Islamic-related topics and social issues. Today, I want to talk about religious symbolism in modern society. So I was thinking about this article that I read in First Things, firstthings.com, quite some time ago, and it is called Why Nuns Should Wear Habits by Matthew uh, Skimitz, I think his last name is spelled S-C-H-M-I-T-C, and I will link the article below. And I just, I was thinking about it because I found his argument for why nuns should wear the habit such a fascinating one, and I found it one that as a hijabi, someone who wears the scarf, the khimar, or whatever you'd like to call it, the religious dress of a Muslim woman, it was an argument that I hadn't really ever heard. Now, the interesting thing is that within the article, it doesn't touch on the topic as much as within the comments. So actually, when I was thinking of the article, um, I just sort of lumped the comments in the article together in my thought process uh, of thinking about it before reading it again. But in fact, the comments added a lot, especially a lot of examples to the article so to support the article. Um, and so basically the aspect that he comes from and the and a lot of the commentators are coming from about why none should wear the religious habit is, and if you're not familiar, the, the habit is the thing that some nuns wear on their head. It's usually black and white. It's kind of square on top, and it kind of just falls down to the side. It looks similar to hijab, but a bit more uh, structured, and they all basically wear the same one. And so what he discusses is that a lot of these nuns in in these different religious orders. So if you're not familiar, the life of a nun is devoted to service, worship, basically isolation, being in that group of nuns. And um, they believe marrying themselves to Christ. Um, do they literally believe this or uh, metaphorically? I'm not sure. But basically devoting one's life to God and being in isolation uh, in that devotion. And so, and there are still there are still nuns today uh, and orders today that do this. And it's interesting because just to drift off for a bit, it reminds me of not all but definitely some Sufi orders, some monks, that this is their, this is a big part of their practice is this isolation and being devoted to God and being isolated from society. It doesn't exist as much in Islam, but when you go into the world of Sufism, you can definitely find it, probably not as much today, uh, I'm sure of that, but it it has existed if you read the work of uh, one of the greatest books you can read just to get an example of the different kinds of Sufi, Sufis, great Sufis, as well as Sufi life is to read uh, the book of Ibn Arabiya, um, Sufis of Andalus. Sufis of Andalusia, this is an excellent book just to get a taste of what the Sufi life was about. 
for many of the great Sufis that came before. A lot of the times now, being a Sufi does not necessarily involve as much life sacrifice as it did for others of the past. And I should mention that Islam never promotes, um, what do I want to call it? I can't think of the word right now. Basically, like being a monk, it never promotes um, swearing off marriage and swearing off children and swearing off, you know, that's not a mainstay in Islam. But for some people, for some orders, that is the way in which they operate. And for some people, it may not be that they swear off marriage, but that they are devoted to God and their worship in a particular way that just never comes to involve marriage, that they never think about getting married. They just happen to never be married. But maybe if someone, you know, maybe if someone approached them about marriage or told them to get married, so maybe they would. So it's not like a swearing off of marriage necessarily, but it's taking a particular devotional path. And just to say one more thing about that before we get back on topic, is that in Islam, there are some people who should not get married. So for example, if someone knows they cannot fulfill the rights of marriage, so if if someone um, is a woman, for example, and she knows that she is disinterested in uh, in sexual life, she's completely disinterested in that aspect of human life, then it would be wrong for her to get married. Now, now I should say that if she got married to someone who accepted that, I suppose, Allahu alam, it would be fine. But that is something that's really important to keep in mind. Or for a man who does not have the finances, doesn't foresee a way to get the finances, can't even borrow money to get married, he cannot take care of a wife and children, it would be wrong for him to get married because he can't fulfill the expectations of marriage. So there are some people in Islam or it could be a personality thing. Somebody has serious anger problems and they know if they'll get if they get married, they will abuse their spouse. That kind of person should not get married until they're able to fix that problem. So there are some people in Islam who should not get married, but overall, it was the sunnah of the Prophet peace and blessings to him to get married, to have children, to have a family life. So it is it is of extreme importance in Islam. So I just got off of that for a bit just to say that the idea of being a nun, while not the gold standard of in Islam, it definitely exists in the sense of some of our great scholars, some of the great Sufis have taken a path of isolation and devotion. But again, not a mainstay in Islam and not an ideal. And so one of the things that he talks about in this article is that there have been a lot of nun orders that have chosen to no longer wear the habit. And they've chosen to dress normally and to devote their lives to social justice, to service, but not as much to those inner, uh, private, direct connection to God kind of activities, activities like 
communal life and strict prayer and um again wearing the habit they have traded that for the promotion of social justice and what he actually says is that a lot of people who have decided to still join those orders the ones that they choose are overwhelmingly ones where they wear the habit where this nun order still wears the habit which is something very interesting because we see it happen so often in our modern day times and it's something for us to be concerned about as Muslims but it's also something for Christians to take an inner look and be concerned about there's so many Christian churches Christian figures who are just so desperate to appeal to the youth or mainstream America or popular culture that they they denigrate their religion they degrade their religion they distort their religion in order for people in order to attract people to their ministry and it may work you may have mega churches or there there are many mega churches where hundreds of thousands of people and they don't talk about and I'm talking about Christianity right now they don't talk about Jesus Christ they don't talk about uh any of the laws of Christianity they talk about God as love all day and night they talk about God is a prosperity god and making money all day and night. Uh they don't talk really much about anything that makes them particularly distinct from the rest of society. And I mentioned this in I think it was the last podcast where this is such an issue to me because if I'm asked no I think this was um in a YouTube video or something. But if I'm asked about what it means to be a Muslim, and my response is you to you is about everything that has nothing to do with Islam. If I say, well, I wake up in the morning and I brush my teeth and I comb my hair and I get some breakfast and I get dressed and I go outside and etc. 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 and I tell you about everything about my life except those things that are particular to my life as a muslim those things that are particular to islam i've done you a great disservice and i've misrepresented myself as a muslim because if you want to know what my life is as a muslim i think that is enough for me to know that you want to know something about islam because everyone we all have common ground we all brush our teeth in the morning we all eat breakfast we all have dinner we all have similar hopes and dreams for this life to have a family to have a good career all of these things there are probably so much more that we have in common than we have different but the point is that if someone wants to know about your life as a muslim they're asking you a very particular question. They're not asking you to tell them how normal you are. They're not asking you to tell them everything you have in common with everyone else. They're asking what makes Islam and being Muslim distinct from every other thing that one could be. And so for the church to turn into a place 
where you have these popular, very charismatic leaders and they're preaching the prosperity gospel, they're preaching about God is love, they're preaching about relationships, they're preaching about everything but religion. That is a serious issue and that is how you have the decline of your faith. You have a bunch, you may have a million people in your church, but how many of them know anything about the Akita, the beliefs of Christianity? So how successful have you really been? And so as a Muslim to look at what's happening, then it it is a warning to me and a reminder to me that we just have to be careful. I think that as Muslims, we do need to represent ourselves in a way that makes sense to people in a way that is logical and clear and and taps into the culture and the reality of what it means to be an American what modernity means while at the same time still presenting the truth so if I talk to a non-Muslim about Islam, I may use the word God instead of Muhammad. I may use, uh, excuse me, I may use the word God instead of Allah. I may use the word uh, Jesus instead of Isa, which is his Arabic name. I may say Moses instead of Musa, which is his Arabic name, because I want to, I want them to not have a language barrier. I want them to see that Islam is not about, it's not a new religion. It's not something that was created in the 7th century. It's not something that Muhammad came with. It is something that has been here from the very beginning. All the prophets or, or many of the prophets that everyone knows about are prophets of Islam. And Islam is it is our faith, yes, but at the end of the day, Islam is about the belief in one God. And every single prophet that came to teach people about the belief in one God was a Muslim. Now, whether you want to call him something else, it doesn't make a difference. He was a Muslim because a Muslim is someone who surrenders to God, who believes in one God. And so... Yeah, I think it is important to to change our approach, not even to change it, because I don't think it's about changing it, but I think it's about observing the people of your society and knowing what is the best way to approach them. Even now, I think that in uh, the Emirates, I think is a huge opportunity for Dawah just because Americans love prosperity, Americans love wealth and, and riches and a the Emirates is a classic American rags to riches story. It really is. These people were regular, uh, I forget what the exact name for it is. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm going to miss the word. But these people were people who lived in tents, didn't have much, lived a simple life only maybe 60, 70 years ago. But then God allow them bless them to find oil and that and throughout the years they have increased their wealth places like Qatar investing in investing in education places like Dubai investing in tourism so using that that wealth that Allah initially initially gave them through oil to build and to grow in other ways 
that is an incredible opportunity for Dawa because Americans love a rags to riches story. And there's nothing wrong with that being a means for people to reach Islam, that people go to Dubai. I've seen so many pictures of people who have gone to Dubai and they dress the you know non-Muslims, Western people, and they get dressed in their abaya and they get dressed in their jalapia. And this is such an opportunity because now they don't get to, they have a different picture of Islam now. Now they don't see Islam as attached to some third world war-torn country. Now they see it attached to wealth and beauty and prosperity. And that is such an opportunity for Islam and for Dawah if those countries use it correctly. But honestly, even without words, because sometimes it's not always about words. Many, many times, People come to Islam and it has nothing to do with anything anyone told them. It was maybe a light bulb moment. It was the way someone lived their life. It was the Quran that they heard that they didn't understand, different language, but they heard it and it draw them and it drew them to it. Yes, they learned after that and they st- and they looked into their religion and then they decided that this is what they believe, but we we cannot be we can't forget that there are so many ways that people come to Islam and all of those ways are good if it's not a degradation and a misrepresentation of Islam. So going on television as a Muslim and talking about Islam and wearing nice clothes and looking nice and and having a good presentation and speaking well Those are important things to convey Islam. And again, it's not always about the exact message. You know, you're not always going to really have the opportunity to tell people Islam is about believing in God and and, um, accepting that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was a messenger. And so if you want to become Muslim, just say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Yeah, that would be great if, if at every corner... Every time we had an opportunity, we could say that, but that's not always going to be the, that opportunity is not always going to present itself, and it's not always going to be appropriate, but if you come on and you are a kind person on television, in an interview, in school, as a teacher, in your job, whatever your job is, as a neighbor, as a friend, if you come off as a good person, that in and of itself is an invitation to Islam. So I'm saying all this to say that nuns getting rid uh, and Muslims, Christians, Muslims, whoever, getting rid of things that are at the core of their faith is bad. But tailoring your message to your society is good, in my opinion, because one, because I believe that works, because I believe that makes sense, but also because I believe that is the prof- the example of all the prophets, that they came to the people with things that they could relate to, the things they could understand. Doesn't mean they were always accepted, but they came in the best way possible. Musa, salam, he came to Pharaoh, and he did, in front of his doing this competition with his magicians. And he did a trick, a a quote-unquote magical trick. It wasn't in reality. But he did a quote-unquote magical trick that the magicians recognize 
that is not magic. That is not just magic. The magicians were in awe of what he did when he, um, when the stick, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed his stick to become a serpent and to devour, I, I forget exactly what the other, what the magicians put forward, but to basically devour whatever magical trick stuff they did. So the magicians could see, and the magicians were, were considered high-class society in this time, in the time of Pharaoh. They were a big deal. And so when the magicians recognized this is more than just magic, that was enough to begin to change the people's hearts. Allahu alam how many people came to Islam. But there were people, excuse me, there were people among the magicians who said, I know that's not magic. That is something else. That is a miracle from God. And I don't care what Pharaoh does to me. I believe. I believe in God. Because they saw the example for themselves. And imagine being in that society. And you see the magicians who are considered high class society. And you see that they, or at least one or some of them, saw what Musa did and said, wait a minute, that's not magic. That has to be from God. I believe in God. Imagine how that would affect your heart as someone just watching. So when we use the tools of our society, I think it is very, very effective. When we look at our society and we say, okay, who are, who are the highest, who are considered the highest members of society, the highest class? So how can we utilize that how can we take that example and utilize it for islam i think that is that is extremely positive as long as we hold on to our faith so just to go on in the article he continues to talk about how uh, having a religious habit so this is from this is a bit of research from the center of applied research of the apostolate they found that two-thirds in 2009 survey, two-thirds of new members had joined religious orders that wore habits. The authors concluded having a religious habit was an important factor for a significant number of new members. Interviews with vocation directors also suggest that many who are inquiring into a religious life are looking for the possibility of wearing a habit even in those institutes in which few, if any, members regularly do so. In the 1970s, the theorist Marshall McLehan, and he, McLehan has so many good quotes, so many insightful, uh, I usually read his works in quotes, I haven't read a book of his yet, but he has so many insightful things about media. One of his greatest quotes that you may have heard of is, media is the message one one of my absolute favorite quotes on media because i don't think we realize enough how much media is the message media dictates how that message flows out you cannot put on the internet what you put on tv what you put in a book what you put in a newspaper all of those mediums demand something different the media it, excuse me, the medium is the message. So it, one of my favorite quotes, so I, I do recommend you just, just look up Marshall McLehan just to read some of his different quotes on the media. They're just very insightful. 
so he said that he believed that, this is Marshall McLuhan, he argued for the ongoing importance of the habit. He believed that television had promoted an image-based culture where visual communication was especially important. In a number of essays, including in his book, The Medium and the Light, he argues that Christians, therefore, must find everyday visual ways of expressing their distinctness from society. And so he says, the need for participation, he says the need for participation in groups and social forms always requires some code, whether verbalized or in the form of costume and vestment. As a means of involvement in common actions, what the young are obviously telling us is this. We want beards, we want massive costumes, and vestments for everybody. We don't want of uh, we do not want of this simple, plain individual stuff. So what he argued is that rather than the nuns trying to shed their habits and dress more like everyday people, that our times actually call for more distinctive, more extreme forms of religious dress. So again, he says, the same youngsters who detest the cop in his ordinary attire admire and imitate the motorcycle cop in this, uh, in his more spectacular costume. This may offer a clue to each religious that it may be the wrong time to din down clerical attire just when something very far out and very unconventional may be needed. And I think this is something that is such a sore point that some people, some religious people, miss at times, including myself. Because as a Muslim woman, there are times when we start to feel concerned about Islamophobia, someone attacking us because we're Muslim. Or even, it cannot even be as serious as attacking, but someone having bad opinions of us because we're Muslim. Uh, I was recently, my brother-in-law visited, uh, visited us, my brother-in-law and my sister, and he told us about, he was working some time ago in a grocery store and someone asking him if he was Muslim and then them just going on a complete tirade about how horrible Muslims are. And so even sometimes you feel as though you don't want people to know you're Muslim because you don't know what being Muslim means to them. You don't know if they associate Muslims with terrorism or with modesty or with peace or with wealth or with poverty or with... You don't know what they associate being Muslim with because there is so much vitriol out right now about Muslim. There's Muslims. There is so much anti-Muslim speech in our society that it becomes very difficult for us as Muslims to want to associate ourselves with Islam. Not because we don't like Islam, not because we have a problem with our religion, but because we know what that may mean to the, the person that we're speaking to. Or rather, we don't know <laughs> what that may mean to the person we're speaking to. How are they perceiving me now that they know I'm Muslim? And this is a very difficult thing to deal with. But what we don't think about, so there's that aspect of it. Being a Muslim wearing hijab in a non-Muslim and increasingly non-religious society and increasingly anti-Muslim society. Then there's the other aspect of 
wearing hijab simply because you're a Muslim woman and that is what you believe is the right thing to do. That's what you believe God wants you to do. But a third aspect that I don't think we ever really think about is our religious presence, our religious impact on the rest of society. Because we're so caught up at times in thinking of all the negative things people may think about Islam that we forget. We actually forget the positive impact that we could have on somebody's life. Because religious symbolism is a sign, it's an ayah, it's a reminder of religion. And religion is, of course, a reminder of God. And so we don't know. Now, who knows? Maybe that's only 10, 20% of people that would see our hijab and be reminded of God. And maybe 80% of people will be reminded of all the negative things. But I do think it's something that is of value. That religious symbolism is a reminder of God's presence in society. In our society, we're constantly reminded, we constantly have signs, ayah, symbolism, of what? Of capitalism. Capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. We have ads, billboards, everywhere we go. And in the city, if you live in the city, even more so. So we're, if we remove all religious symbolism from our from the out from the uh, outer world and then we also remove it from our personal body and the people who say you know just practice religion is something personal just practice it in your own home they get their way we all hide in our homes we all take off our hijab we only practice religion in our house we don't talk about islam outside we don't talk about being muslim what are we doing to society and i know that that's a big responsibility for any one individual Muslim woman to think about, but it is nevertheless a value. It is a value. It's not, and I'm not saying anyone should take on that responsibility, but I'm saying it is something to think about and it is an added boost, an added encouragement to wear hijab and for men as well because men tend to think, well, since it's not their religious obligation to dress in any particular way. They're just going to fit in with everyone else. And as Muslim women, sometimes we think it's unfair, which it is when it comes to quote-unquote Islamophobia. In that aspect, yeah, I do think it is unfair that Muslim women are going to get the brunt of mistreatment by people who are anti-Muslim because we wear hijab and men are walking around like every other Joe. I do agree with that. But you know what? The men are also doing a disservice to themselves. Because as a Muslim woman, how many times have you been hit on compared to your non-Muslim friend? How many times have you been axed out on a date compared to your non-Muslim friend? How many times have you been pressured to sleep with anyone compared to your non-Muslim friend? The answer is probably either zero or very few times or much less than your non-Muslim friend. Because hijab commands respect. Hijab commands respect. And so when I read articles about what the, some of the issues that non-Muslim women are facing, or even if I just think back on my life in grade school and high school, 
the pressures that I got from men was nothing in comparison to my non-Muslim friends. All I had to do was assert my Islam and 9 out of 10 times I would be left alone. Whereas my non-Muslim friends, what could they do? What could they assert? And I'm definitely going to do a future podcast about this, but I'm reading this book about modesty. And it is so fascinating because she talks about in the past, she gives this example of this song, um, I forget the name of it, but it's like an old song. And the it's like a back and forth between this man and woman. I guess they've gone on a date or something, and maybe they're in his home, whatever, something like this. And the woman keeps saying that she has to go. And she gives different reasons. She talks about what kind of woman, what kind of woman will they think I am. Or my dad is at home waiting for me. And he keeps saying, baby, it's cold outside. I'm sure you guys all know this song. It's a very, very, very popular American song. Sort of an old classic. But she talks about this back and forth and this idea of women having an excuse for themselves if they didn't want to sleep with a man, if they didn't want to give a man physical affection, if they didn't want to date a man, if they didn't want to talk to a man. There were a myriad of excuses that a woman could give that would allow a man to back off. Whereas now in modern society, the only reason she can give is herself. And that should be good enough. It should be good enough in an ideal world that a woman says no and no means no. That should be good enough. But in reality, it takes more than that, unfortunately, to to have and to assert these moral, modest boundaries between men and women. women because a girl in our society being pressured to have sex with a boy, what does she have that she could say as to why she can't? She's not attracted to him. How many women are so afraid, especially when you're younger and insecure, of hurting a guy's feelings? What else could she say? She's her dad? No, you can't use your dad as an excuse anymore because society tells men they shouldn't control their daughters. Can she say, well, what will everyone think of me? No, because everyone tells her it's okay to have sex with whoever you want. It's just fine. You know, it's your choice. So she has she has nothing she can say, nothing she can go to to try and take herself out of the situation where she is being it's, it doesn't even have to be pressure or manipulation or anything like that. It could be that. But where she is feeling... Um, the Really, the weight of the male power of male uh, persuasiveness. And she has nothing that she can turn to to get herself out of this situation. And this happens a lot with our youth, with younger girls. So it's... It is such a, um, sorry, I'm just trying to think of what was the related point I was trying to make. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So the idea of religious symbolism, it's not just personal. It really isn't just personal. It inserts and asserts God in every single situation so that you can say someone invites you to a bar, say, oh, I can't, I'm Muslim. 
Some man invites you for a date. Oh, I can't. I'm Muslim. Someone invites you to have a cigarette. Oh, I can't. I'm Muslim. Someone invites you to a party. Oh, I can't. I'm Muslim. You have a one-way ticket to get out of situations that make you uncomfortable. To get out of situations, not only uncomfortable, obviously, but uncomfortable and um, or un-Islamic situations to be in. Whereas if you're a woman who, or a person who has no religious symbolism on them, everything becomes an individual choice. But the thing about individual choice is that it can always be persuaded. It's a lot easier to persuade an individual to drink alcohol if their only reason why they're not drinking alcohol is because they don't want to. It is a lot easier to pressure someone into drinking alcohol if their only reason is that I don't want to. Because we're all persuadable, especially in social situations. But when there's something bigger than you that you can point to and say, listen, I'm attaching myself to this larger thing, this larger concept, this larger moral way of life, it's a lot easier to get out of those types of situations. It's a lot easier to live a moral life. So what I was saying is that for men, Muslim men, who decide to not dress in any kind of religious garb, we may think that's unfair as women, and in some ways it is, again, as I said, with Islamophobia, but they also do themselves a disservice. How many how many Muslim men who uh, dress like regular Joes have you known to have a girlfriend, to smoke, to just do every do all the things he's not supposed to be doing? And what do you think the odds of that would be if he was a Muslim man who wore the jalabiyah, even if it was a more modern one, a shorter one or something, who wore the jalabiyah, who wore a kufi, who wore some liquor beads, those pressures would be completely different because you're signaling to the world, hey, I'm a religious person. I'm a religious person. And that automatically says to the world, there are some things I'm not interested in doing. Whereas if you're not dressed particularly religious, even if people know you're Muslim, those pressures are going to come at you left and right for your entire life. And so religious symbolism, it is very valuable as a signal to the world that of your morals, your values, but also as as imposing and asserting in the world God, you are now forced to remember God because of this person. And you know, that may sound unfair. Well, nobody should force anyone to do anything. That's what a secular would say. I'm not, I'm not saying for, you don't, you're not forcing verbally. But if you go outside in your abaya, your hijab, your jalabiya, your vicar beads, your kufi, etc., etc., you are telling people that God's presence in the world is still very much real. But if you don't, if you're just dressed like a regular Joe, you're not allowing for that presence to be heard. And the the fact that the presence isn't there doesn't mean there's an absence of everything. We forget. It's a part of our world. So we forget about all the advertisements. But all of the advertisements symbol capitalism. It symbols a here and now-ness in an unhealthy way. It symbols an attachment to the world, an attachment to the material, whereas religious symbolism symbolizes an attachment to God. 
And so it's valuable. It's valuable in a wholesome sense, not just for the individual, but for the society. And there's one more thing I want to say. Is that... I think it was in the comment section of this article. I'm going to leave the article link below. Where, where someone was talking about how they remember being young and sitting in the pizzeria. And they remember when the nuns would come in. Nuns dressed in their habit and all. And the sense of awe that they had for them. The sense of almost a reminder to be on your best behavior, a reminder to be a good person, a reminder of God. And that kind of presence, we don't see it. We may not see it. We may not feel it. But it's there and it's real. That asserting yourself as a person of God in a world that can, that is constantly, continuously telling us to attach ourselves to the dunya, to attach ourselves to the world as much as humanly possible is valuable. It is valuable. And so I just, I really, I love this article and I wanted to share it and talk about it because it is another, it is another aspect of why religious dress is valuable. And the even while I'm talking now, I'm sort of thinking of some other aspects of religious dress attached to this that are also valuable, but I don't want to uh, spend any more time. It's just another reminder, and we need we need as much as possible reminders in this world. We need masjids that remind us of God, that remind us that are, there are people worshiping, there are people who are not just attached to this world and looking to buy the next thing the people who believe in god want to better their life want to be better people even a church even as a muslim churches remind me of that i am happy to see churches and synagogues and masjids in in uh just in the world just out in the world and to be able to recognize them and recognize people are devoting their lives to God and a reminder to myself to continue devoting my life to God. Symbols are valuable. Symbols are extremely valuable. We all know that seeing those advertisements with those skinny women and uh, with their happy faces and all of that, it it is a pressure on us to be thin. I remember for years I guess this is when I was in school. I I was taking the train probably almost every day. For years, the billboard right when you got out of the train was a billboard for Ciroc Vodka. This is uh, P. Diddy, the, the former rapper. This is his alcohol. Ciroc Vodka. Every single day for years. To the point where it... I would never drink alcohol. I mean, it doesn't appeal to me in any way. But almost where I would feel to myself, like, if I ever was going to drink alcohol, I'd probably drink this one. They look so happy. They look, they just look, they look happy. They look successful. They look rich. That impacts our mind. And so for someone who isn't Muslim, who is a non-Muslim, I'm sure that ad impacts them. We all want to think that we're, that we're so much smarter than to be impacted by ads, but we are impacted by them. That's why companies spend millions and billions of dollars 
on ads because they know that that symbolism, getting that image in your mind is so valuable. It's not about, it's not always about logic. It's very often about symbolism and giving you a particular message that you're almost that your kind of feelings understand, if that makes sense. So what I mean is that an image doesn't speak, but there we all know the saying, a picture says a thousand words. Images say something to us without having to say much. If you, if your mind, your inner mind, your subconscious can connect happiness, alcohol, happiness, alcohol, happiness, alcohol. If it can do that enough times and you don't have a larger moral basis to tell, to say to you that that is not okay, that alcohol is not good, it's not good for you and it's not the way of a believer, of course you will succumb to that pressure because it's not it's not even about logic it's about something so deep and so internal where our minds ourselves make these connections and then we end up investing in it so <coughs> excuse me so if we continue to have women who wear hijab men who wear jalabiyas women who wear um habits and men who wear uh I mean Christian men, the dress for Christian men is completely completely gone. But if we continue to have those religious symbols, it's so valuable not only to the individual but to society. So I really suggest that you read this article and read the comments below because the comments below are really insightful as well. And uh you know it's something to think about. Do you feel like Modesty, modest dress, religious dress is valuable to larger society. Do you think this article makes some good points? Or maybe you don't. But I wanted to share it with you just to get you thinking about it. Thank you for listening. Take care.